All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time to fellowship together as family in the unity that you've provided us. Thank you for adopting us into your own very special, magnificent family, Father. We know we didn't deserve it, but we are so very grateful and thankful, even eternally so. Thank you for inspiring the Word of God and moving the writers to write these truths down for the ages. The benefits are beyond human comprehension, Father, and we're just so very grateful that you've done this good thing for us to help us as we walk along. Thank you also for sending the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to help us, to guide us, to empower us as we're doing and completing your commands in time without which we'd be able to do nothing. What a magnificent plan you've put together for us, Father. May we never become familiar with it. And then special prayers, of course, Father, during this Christmas season. Uh, it is a time of reflection for all of us, but for many, unfortunately, especially those without Christ, it's a time of confusion and anxiety and sorrow and regret and just so many things that are ungodly, Father, that what shall we do to contribute to correcting such things? You let us know, Father. Thank you for the Spirit that guides us to doing such things. Thank you for giving us a commission that we can fulfill, that great commission to bring a gospel out to a dead world, Father, that's separate from you that's led by the God of this world, Satan himself. Thank you for the privilege of that commission. And thank you for enabling us, the faculties, to complete it. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to make even a morning like this one a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Yep. The difficult passages, Grace and Works, part 29. I lied. If you were here on Thursday, it happens there. I don't know why I don't learn my lesson. I'm like stubborn like a mule. <laughs> if you were here on Thursday, I said, no, this is it. I'm closing up shop. Part 28, hoorah. He's like, yeah, hoorah this. <laughs> this is part 29. Uh, it was, I'll just, just uh, to make you giggle a little bit, until the very end of the lesson, it really was a different title. He made me go back and change it back after I had penned the lesson. So I had my own... It's a good lesson to start off class with. I had my own direction, didn't I? I had my own thoughts. I had my own title, even. And I put it down in both my lesson plan and my slides. And they were both there. And even saved in the file, folder file, titled that lesson name. And at the end of it all, he said, go change it. <laughs> so, always be humble. I guess that's what he's saying. Always be humble. You may, you know, there's a way that's right to man, but it's 
not God's way. So says scripture. And you have to always be humble. Always. Some of us have to check. Now it is the season, right? To check ourselves. It's going to be a new year. Everybody's making these resolutions, which I think is ridiculous, but gyms love them. Nobody? Um, everybody sets these directions, and then I think they're too arrogant to go back on their own plans. And that is the folly of man. Uh, whenever somebody tells me, oh, I have a five-year plan, or I have a ten-year plan, or I have a whatever, I always say, no, you don't. I can tell you right now that that's your plan. That is not God's plan. Those are the plans of men. I can't even make it a, what, what was it, three days between Thursday and Sunday? Right? I can't make it, well, I wrote it on Saturday, so I can't make it two days without them telling me, no, no. We're going to do this my way. So some of you have to think about that. Plans that you've made that aren't godly and stop being arrogant about it and understand that you're supposed to do what he asks us to do or asks you to do specifically. Evaluate yourself. Examine yourself. See what's missing that's supposed to be there. Not just what's there and shouldn't. All these things are sort of a collective of thoughts over the past few months. Uh, with that said, um, on Thursday we began with the heart of God towards His own people, Israel. Go to Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. <clears throat> And this really is a good indicator of our Lord God, the intent of who He is towards His own people, His children. Even though it's Old Testament, what you'll see is the same God of the universe. Look at verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So what does he say? So choose life in order that you may live. That's God's will. I'm going to, in integrity, set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life in, in order that you may live, you and your descendants. And then I love verse 20 because he gets into, well, how is that done? By loving the Lord your God. You want to live a, a full, fruitful, uh, rewarding, content, peaceful life? Love the Lord your God. That's life. I mean, what kind of life is it if you're not loving the Lord? What kind of life is it if you're angry with the Lord? Or discontent or malcontent with the Lord? Is that living? No. That's the curse. That's death. So he says, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, you want to know how it's done? Obey me. I know what's best. I've given you commands. I've inspired the canon. Obey me. And by holding fast to Him. I was thinking as I was praying up here, 
I always pray before I start even. I'm like, just wrap your arms around me. That's what I told him as I was praying. I said, just wrap your arms around me because you know how it goes. It's just distraction after distraction, test after test. Uh, and that's just before I get on stage. There were several I've had to deal with already this morning. And I said, just wrap your arms around me because sometimes I feel like, you know, throwing in the towel. Just saying, all right, this is, this is done. Maybe they need a new person. Maybe they need a new pastor. Maybe they need a change of pace. Maybe they need something because they're becoming familiar with you. I don't know. So it's, what are you supposed to do then? What are you supposed to do in those times? You're supposed to say, well, I'm not going to get down my knees because I'll get a bunch of emails and questions after. But when you're praying to him, this is what he wants. He says, love me. I'm your Lord. Forget about everybody else in your life. And this goes for all of you. Forget about all the distractions. Forget about it. Forget about everyone else. Love me. Obey me. Hold fast to me. That's how you survive. That's how you enjoy a holiday season. That's how you choose life that you may live. Amen? That's the heart of God. You see how easy it is? Just keep going back to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord saw to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them. That just gives us the specific details as the Lord's heart is applied to circumstances in life. But as you continue to read your Bibles, you realize that it's the same Lord God. Just different circumstances. This happened to be Israel. He made some covenants that included land. Fine. Okay. You want those blessings? Love me. Obey me. Stick by me. So this is a wonderful place to start because it means to simply worship God. This is what we're seeing here. Simply worshiping God Almighty. Choose life in order that you may live. By what? Loving the Lord your God. Obeying His voice. Holding fast to Him. You want to live life in time? You want to stop being miserable? You want to stop doubting? You want to stop questioning uh, you know, what tomorrow might bring? You know what James said about that. You're just a vapor. Stop planning this way or that way. How about you just live today? How about you love the Lord your God today? Obey His voice today? Hold fast to Him today? How about that? I mean, can any one of us go back and change yesterday? No. Here's a, now here's the one I think that I've always been plagued with. Tomorrow doesn't even exist yet. So what are we doing spending all our thoughts on something that doesn't even exist? Why not right now? Look to your left and to your right. You've got people that actually care about you because you're members of their family in Christ Jesus. And yet we spend so much time 
with our eyes diverted to people that really, frankly, don't care about us. And I'm talking about sometimes even family members, which is a tough thing to swallow, but it's true. With all that we've learned over the past year or so, beginning with the gospel reload, my hope as your shepherd is that you now understand that the God of this universe, what his desires are for you, for all members of his family, even throughout the ages. The Lord God is of one mind. This is what this whole take the construct of time out perspective was, as he keeps weaving it into our studies. Remember that God's not bound by time. So if he's not bound by time, and he's immutable, which means he never changes, then it doesn't matter what the human aspect is. It's, he's the same God. He says, I, I look at I love you. I want you to love me back. I love you enough to give you commands so you don't crash and burn, so obey my commands. I'm always here. I'm ever-present. I'm omnipotent. I'm an omniscient. So stand by me. Scripture says he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Go to Deuteronomy 6.4. We're gonna, I'm going to show you something briefly uh, that if you were an Israelite back in the day meant an awful lot more than I can even teach today. <clears throat> we're not going to get into it, but I'll give you enough to, to show you the heart of our Lord. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's a big deal. That was a very big deal to the Jews. The Lord is one. Up here on the board, one is from Echad in the Hebrew. It refers to unity. So it's not just talking about the Lord being, you know, one. It's a much bigger concept. It's unity. Yeah, it's hard to explain, but um, this is what it means. It refers to unity, not singleness. Same word used to describe one flesh between husband and wife in Genesis 2.4. I mean, obviously, they don't, I mean, they're not one flesh, but there's unity. Do you understand? It's the same word. So it refers to unity, not singleness. Same word used to describe one flesh between husband and wife in Genesis 2.24. It not only implies monotheism, one God, but the Trinity as well. God is unity. That's what the Lord is one actually means. God is, in a sense, unity itself. That's a pretty big thing to think about, isn't it? It's a magnificent thing, though. Because if we're ever going to experience eternal life. I mean, think about what I just said. Put your arms around me. He says, I'm unity. It's hard to explain. But He's one. The Lord is one. And it's funny because the word means one, yet that one thing encompasses everything that God is. Now, consider what that means to have Him indwelling you. And his desire for your worship. If God is unity, he is. The Lord is one. He's unity. Not just one, but unity itself. Consider the fact that if you're saved, he indwells you. And his desire is for your worship. 
it makes total sense that if we are baptized into unity with Him at salvation, and we are, then this unity, here we go again, becomes us. That's that aorist tense. It becomes us. Something happened in the past, it continues on. That's the aorist tense in the Greek even that we studied on Thursday. But this unity becomes us. It's not like, you know, um, you know, there's one God and then there's one us. There's a unity now. And that's why he gives us the picture of marriage and sexual relations in marriage because that's what it means to be one flesh. This unity becomes us. Our new creature being a partaker of the divine nature of God has invited us into this unity. So we were born separate from this unity. And the one who is this unity, the one who has always been this unity, invites us in. That's incredible. The concept of unity in the Bible is very interesting because it includes so much more than just the term one or even togetherness. I suppose the closest natural analog would be the, the unity, and I don't mean to offend anyone, so I suppose the closest natural analog would be the unity a mother feels with her unborn child in her womb. But even that falls far short of what divine unity actually is. Again, Deuteronomy 6.4, what's it say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Again, on the board, the Lord is one. One is from a cod in the Hebrew refers to unity, not singleness. It's the same word used to describe one flesh between husband and wife. It not only implies monotheism, but the Trinity as well. God is unity. The God of unity, the God who is unity, desires that you enjoy this unity to whatever degree possible in time. How? Look at verse 5. Just imagine this. He says, I'm unity. Now I'm inviting you in. What does verse 5 say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You want to enjoy that unity? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It means every fiber of your being, not just physical, everything. I want it all. That's the Lord. And that's magnificent. That's stupendous. It's I cannot teach the value of that in your soul. I cannot. It's that personal. It's that intimate. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Does that describe you? Or do you love the world just a little bit? Are you betrothed to the Lord, but you got a little something on the side? Which one describes you? Because if you want all of Him, 
then you have to literally love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. That's all He wants. And if that doesn't make sense to you, as a shepherd, all I can tell you to do is go somewhere really quiet and find what that means. Go pray to Him. Get on your knees. Weep. Whatever you need to do, find what that means to love Him that way. But I love my spouse. Shut up. We know you love your spouse. But that spouse, you're not even going to be married in heaven. We're talking about eternal things. Get your eyes off of people. Verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today, remember, again, commands are essentially the expression of God's will. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. When God commands something of us, it's really Him revealing His will for us. Case in point, He wants the members of His family to worship Him. That's how we gain, that's how we enjoy this unity. Um, He's our Lord. But that also means something. That He's Lord. That means He's sovereign. That means we are under Him, so to speak. So the rightful sense of unity is that we would worship Him. He wants the members of His family to worship Him. And furthermore, from them, or for them to teach their children to do the same. There's an awful lot of, uh, the Spirit has to say on children nowadays, and I'm going to leave it now. But all I can tell you is that that's, from my perspective, it's a pressure. And this is how I teach the way I teach. You say, well, how do you know what to teach? Trust me, I know. There's a real pressure from the Spirit on the topic of children and how we're raising our children and how much God wants us with that incredible responsibility to raise them as unto the Lord. So He wants us to teach our children to do the same. Such is the basis of unity in His family, including the church even today. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. Remember the whole, all that work on the household? And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, that should be your family structure. As for my house and the Lord, we serve the Lord. Or as for me and my house, we serve the Lord, right? That's Joshua. That was that attitude. That's what you see in verse 7. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What do you see there? As for me and my household, we what? Serve the Lord. If you're going to come into my house, this is what we do. That's been another thread. 
All the Spirit's teaching us is that God has always been God. That's why we call Him immutable, because He never changes. While the circumstances of man change, God doesn't, nor does His overall will for mankind, which is something we find well into the New Testament. Go to 1 Timothy 2.3. 1 Timothy 2.3. So you can pick your spot in Scripture. And if you're reading your Bible properly, which just means openly, honestly, with the faith of a child, you're going to see the same Lord God. You will see different circumstances, but you're going to see the same will of God ever present. 1 Timothy 2.3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the will of God for all mankind, Old Testament, excuse me, or New Testament. Desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, that's a reference to unity, there is one God, and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the right time. What about this testimony? What do you mean, this testimony given at the proper time? There's one God with one will that transcends all the ages. And then he gave us his son and The Bible says this is the testimony. A testimony to what? Up here on the board. Let me help you. The testimony given at the proper time. A testimony to what? The answer? To God's undeniable will to bless mankind, to show Him mercy, to love Him, to reconcile Him to Himself. The cross proves all of this and did so at the proper time. Remember, Old Testament looked forward, New Testament looked back. The central act, if you would, in the Bible is the cross itself. And this is the testimony of God's love, His mercy, His will for us. He didn't just say, I will these things for you, good luck. He said, I will these things for you, I'm going to send, I'm going to come out of heaven, become a man, and then die on a cross so that I can prove it to you. This thing will be a testimony to how much I love you. So it seems almost blasphemous to say we don't love Him with all all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. It seems ridiculous not to, but yet that's what we do. So this is incredible what Scripture reveals to us. Across Old Testament, New Testament. There's only one God. He's unity. It's very, very simple. So in my notes here, I have three capital bolded words. Stop, stop, stop. All of you. Just stop in your tracks. And listen intently to what the Spirit's saying to you right now. What did He just put on your heart this morning? Rid yourself of all distractions. Any thoughts about the upcoming holiday, about your afternoon plans, whatever. I'm begging you, stop. And dwell on what the Spirit's put before us this morning. 
I mean, isn't it obvious what he's saying to you? How that manifests in your life, that's between you and the Lord. But it's obvious from my perspective what he's saying. We have closed up our series on grace and works of which we couldn't have partook of unless we hadn't spent the prior year on the gospel. Just think about that. This is not departing from what I just taught. We just spent, what, this is part 29 of Grace and Works. But before that was a whole year of the gospel, salvation, sanctification, where the gospel itself was the centerpiece. We couldn't have done any of this work thereafter unless that had been positioned in our souls perfectly the right way in the first place. A whole year. So take that year, take what he just gave us this morning, and let me give you this. The gospel is an invitation from the eternal God of the universe to spend eternity with him in perfect, blissful, loving fellowship. We were born disunited from Him, but through Jesus we are unified with the, quote, unity that is God. This gospel is the most intimate invitation ever given. God is unity. This same God said, I'm inviting you in Forever and ever and ever. You want my arms around you? You got it. I will become man. I'm perfect. Flawless. I will become a man and die for you so that you have a way to this unity, to me. To the ultimate in intimacy. That's why all these, you know, these counterfeits, not to digress too far, but you can be single your whole life and have a unity that no married person will ever have. It is not about sex. But the world will tell you it's all about sex. That's why they sell dial soap with it. Man and woman become one flesh is a mere shadow of the unity in heaven. It's just a shadow. It's just a wannabe version. Just an inkling of things to come. This is the most intimate invitation ever given. That's how you're supposed to look at the gospel. That's how we're supposed to present it. We're not supposed to beat people over the head with it. We're supposed to be honest. God is sovereign. Don't forget it. You have to repent. Don't forget that. But the draw of the gospel is this on the board. It's the same draw that has existed throughout all of human history. Let me read it again. The gospel is an invitation from the eternal God of the universe to spend eternity with Him in perfect, blissful, loving fellowship. We were born disunited from Him. But through Jesus, we are unified with the, quote, unity that is God. 
the gospel is the most intimate invitation ever given. This is why I gave you this principle on Thursday, the following one, regarding the person who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Up here on the board, I gave you this on Thursday. Jesus Christ, He is the most accessible human being to ever live. Yet multitudes live their whole lives estranged from Him, His friendship, His love. This is the great tragedy throughout the ages. It's incredible when you look at the grand scheme of things, that God is unity, God is love, so says Scripture, and He's inviting you in through the Gospel. And people say, no thank you. I'll take sex. I'll take whatever the God of this world can offer up as a counterfeit to the unity that God, who is love, true love, offers through His Son, Jesus Christ. I'll take the counterfeit. Oh, man. Is that not heartbreaking? I feel like if I think about it too long, I'm going to choke up up here. I'm going to end. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. So on the flip side of the heartbreak is the truth about the Gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth about... Christmas. And by the way, I don't, if you know me personally, you know me pretty well that I don't, uh, these forced holidays, and I'm not saying Christmas is forced, but you know what I'm saying. The force, the commercial force of holidays nowadays disgusts me. We should be celebrating so-called Christmas every day. Not just December 25th. Jesus Christ is the most accessible human being to ever live. What does that mean? You've got the invitation. You've got the most accessible invitation ever. It's that easy. It's that simple. Satan, as we've learned over the past year plus, has done an amazing job at overcomplicating the gospel. He either adds to it or subtracts from it. But in either case, he makes it more complex, more frustrating, and further from the actual divine will of God in heaven. If you've been reading your Bibles, you probably have figured out by now that Jesus Christ, and I say this with all due respect, Jesus Christ is a simple man. I mean that in the most sincere, loving, positive way. He's a very simple man. Up here on the board. The simplest people are often the ones who bring the most glory to God. The greatest compliment that we can ever give a person is that they are simple and pure in their devotion to Christ. And I'm borrowing, obviously, from 2 Corinthians 11.3. It's literally the greatest compliment you can give a person. Your devotion to Christ is simple and pure, and that's as good as it gets. The most amazing witnesses I've ever met 
in time for Christ are just that. Many people in the world would look at them as simpletons, as people that are sort of lower on the food chain in society. But yet, God says, I'll use those people to shame the wise. <laughs> so it's a wonderful compliment, the biggest one you could ever get, that a person or you are simple and pure in your devotion to Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ Himself was simple and pure. Right? <laughs> In one of the most shockingly intimate displays of simplicity given by Jesus to His disciples, Jesus washed their feet. As Scripture states, Mark 10.45, Part A, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's simple. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Some of you know that there's a deeper theological meaning to this intimate scene, but we cannot and should never overlook the simplicity of the message Jesus was sending His disciples in that magnificent moment and to generations thereafter. Go to John 13, 15. John 13, 15. We're not going to read the entire passage because the Spirit just wants to point something out to you. The simplicity of the one doing this thing Washing the disciples' feet. John 13, 15. What did He say? You see how simple I am? I came to serve. And what did He say? For I gave you an example. Well, why don't you listen to His example? I gave you an example that you also... Oh, Satan... Satan don't like this. Hold on. There it is. <laughs> Classic. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. What about you and his example? Is he simple to you? Or is he complex to you? Is Jesus simple to you? Or complex. In all reality, he's very simple. If you've got him right. And he said, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. We serve a living God. Just think about that. I'm trying to weave multiple things together now. We serve a living God. This is the very definition of worship. To our previous point up here on the board, the simplest people are often the ones who bring the most glory to God. The greatest compliment that we can ever give a person is that they are simple and pure in their devotion to Christ. 
Now, to tie this back to our good labor on grace and works, up here on the board, I hope you've seen this. Grace and works. Grace is not a complicated subject. It's an expression of God's love. So whatever he must do to equip a saint to do this good labor, this joint labor with him, that's what he does. That's what grace is. It's meant to bring glory to him. Grace is not a complicated subject. Neither are works. It's really not. It's actually very simple. Holy doctrines only become complicated when we lose sight of the big picture, our spiritual compass, let's say. When our eyes are diverted from Jesus Christ, when we start being dipsukos, double-minded in our ways, we say, well, I know you want all my heart, mind, strength, and all this. I know you want all of me, but I got this little thing on the side, you see. So I'm divided. I'm not pure and simple anymore, am I? Ask the adulterer. How, how simple and pure is life when you're adulterating? Now you're living two lives. How's that any different than the picture the Bible gives us about living two lives? One for the Lord, our true husband, and one for the God of this world, our counterfeit. What does the Word of God say when you're living two lives? Well, I go to church on Sundays, and then I live like hell during the week. And then, all right, no, I've been picking up. I go to church now, and I, I watch the lessons, but I still am living this double life. There's no peace in it. There's no simplicity in that. It's actually a lot harder to live that life and sustain it than it is just to dedicate yourself, to devote yourself to the Lord. Grace is not a complicated subject, neither is works. Holy doctrines only become complicated when we lose sight of the big picture. Our perfect example of where the so-called Christian ranks, now we're going to get specific here for a moment because we've got to tie up some loose ends. A perfect example of where the so-called ranks of Christianity have made simple things complicated was described in yesterday's blog entry titled Perspective on Justification and Salvation. Everyone in this congregation, and frankly many, many more, needs to read this blog, ASAP. Like ASAP. I promise you that it will help you get situated regarding any lingering issues on the subject of salvation that you might have in your soul. Since two Septembers ago, is when we started the Gospel again, since then, the Spirit's been ferreting out false doctrines in our souls, making sure we understand the complexities that Satan, that Satan has inserted into our minds. And just a side note on that, I often think about this. I'm like, geez, why, you know, it really is simple. The truth is simple. <laughs> the problem is Satan comes along and perverts the truth. And so what I have to work with as a shepherd, as I'm like, you know, I mean, when a sheep goes head first into the thicket, right? It's when they're out grazing, it's like simple. It's like, yeah, look at you, you're stupid, you're eating grass, right? But then they go, whoa, look at that, there's like something in the thicket, right? Now it takes what? 
15 hours to extract them from the thicket. So the complexity of the good work is not in the, the purest sense. It's, it's because of the thicket. It's because of the perversion. It's because of the perverted doctrines that we've had inserted into our souls over the years on the subject of the gospel itself. So as a side note, so much of my work and the reason for any complexity in my teaching is not because the Bible makes things complex. It's because in order to defend the truth, I often must address the error, which is typically complex. That's the problem. So just as a side note, um, and if you read the New Testament epistles closely, you'll see the same thing. That's exactly what most of the writers are doing. They're defending something very simple from a perversion. And in order to extract sheep out of the thicket, the perversion... There's some little, you know, you have to grab a little thorn and pull it out. And then, you know, pull it this way and pull it that way and pull it this so they can get them back to simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's where the complexity is. That's why a lot of even the words that a very intelligent individual like Paul used, there's a reason why Paul uses intelligent individuals, by the way, to stand behind pulpits. Not always, but often. It's so that they're intelligent enough to actually see what the error is. And then as a surgeon, after 16 years of training, goes in and is able to extract and cut away the cancerous problems. It's a delicate operation. Paul was very good at it, as you see. But the complexity, if you read between the lines, he's like, it's simple. You guys keep perverting crap. Right? He said, like, you keep going back to the law. Or now you get the Gnostics, right? There's a yin and the yang, right? It's the ones who add to the gospel. It's the ones who try to subtract from the gospel. You, you keep doing these things. Stay in the straight and narrow. It's actually really simple. Nope. <laughs> so what you see is a man. What you see in this man is often a surgeon having to understand the complexities of the error in order to surgically remove sheep from the thicket. And if you read the New Testaments, that's what you'll see. It's that obvious. This is why I liken the work of a shepherd to being a surgeon. One of the surgical procedures is the one I sort of sutured up in the latest blog. This idea that false gospels propose as truth that somehow we're supposed to simply quote Scripture about justification and call it the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a complete perversion. That somehow we're supposed to quote Scripture about justification and then call it the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we might rightly call subtracting from salvation and the true gospel. Here's what the Spirit had to say about this on Thursday on justification. And again, please read the blog. If the doctrine of justification were equivalent to the doctrine of salvation, we wouldn't call them out separately or differently. And neither would the Bible. 
Salvation is a much larger subject than just the judicial, forensic aspects of what happens when God saves us. Stated more definitively, justification is the declaration. Remember, it's a judicial term itself. The, the word, the actual original language it's used is actually language that was used in the court of law. It's judicial, the very nature of it. Justification is a declaration from the judge himself that you have been found righteous in his eyes based on the merits of Jesus Christ in his work on the cross. As a judicial concept, justification primarily deals with the penalty of sin. It's a justice issue. There was You were found guilty, the penalty's been removed. This is how we go about speaking about justice things or judicial things. So justification is on that vein. And if you know anything about Paul's writings, that's what he was doing. Someone was trying to pervert that very thing. Saying you could be justified some other way. And he said, no, you're only justified by faith. You see? Because when you have faith, he imparts righteousness. And there's this whole theology, this judicial strain of theology that's magnificent. But so much of what Paul was doing was defending the truth. You don't have to understand the very details of justification to be saved. Do you? No, of course not. Do you have to understand all the little nuances of justification that Paul wrote about, say, in Romans? To be saved? May it never be. Why is that? Because the gospel is simple. It's about a man who died for you, who had no other hope or right to salvation whatsoever. And this man man died for you. Do you need to understand justification? No. You see? So salvation is, is about a man. It's not about the forensics. We know the forensics are true. We know this. But that is not the gospel. So are we to suppose this to be the entire good news about Jesus Christ? The entire good news about Jesus Christ is, though magnificent, justification. The entire good news about Jesus Christ is about justification only? May it never be. There's a lot more good news Remember, the gospel literally means the good news. There's a lot more good news, and therefore a much bigger gospel than just the facts about our being justified in heaven. Justification is a big deal. I'm not trying to say it's not. But it is not. It is not the whole of the gospel. It is an artifact. It is a truth. It is... Forensic, but it's not the whole of the gospel. For example, justification opens the door to reconciliation, which implies a real relationship between a new creature come alive in Christ and a living God. This isn't about just being set free from prison, it's actually about walking out and giving someone a hug. 
if that makes sense. <laughs> this is about a real relationship. You don't have a real relationship by receiving a piece of paper that says you've been pardoned. This is about a relationship with a person. Jesus Christ is flesh and blood and God. And he says, no one gets to the Father, the God of all unity, in view, but through me. He wants you to know and he wants you to preach a gospel that says, I'm going to let you run out of prison. I want you to run out of prison and hug Jesus. Do you get it? I don't want you just to receive a note from the judge that you've been justified. That's wonderful. Great news. But I want you to run out and give Jesus Christ a big old hug. And you're going to want to worship him for the rest of eternity. Can you worship a piece of paper? Can you worship a gavel? A judge's bench? A judicial reality? No. We don't worship those things. We worship a living God. This is about being reconciled to someone who you were disunified with. You were born separate from. That's what, this is. That's what salvation is. You were born over here, dead, necros, remember? He says, I'm going to make you alive in Christ. What? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. You were born dead, I'm going to make you alive in Christ Jesus. How can that possibly be justification? Only. How can that possibly be the end of the good news? You want me to, it's, that's what we're supposed to tell people? Believe these facts? About, the, about these things about Jesus, this guy that lived 2,000 years ago, and you, you'll be saved and there's no other part of the good news. That's it. Where's the relationship? That sounds like coldness to me. That's exactly what it is. And that's what false gospels do. They make a relationship very cold. Uh, cold relationships aren't even real, right? You ever see a, 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 you ever see, I hate to bring this up, but whatever. You ever see a dead marriage? They're still together, but the two people are dead. There's coldness between them. They don't love each other. There's no relationship. That's death. That's not love. But we're married. We have our little certificate. If you do this certificate, go down to the town hall Get a notary public to, to stamp it out, and you're now married. Yeah, I guess on paper you're married, but crap. You don't even love each other. There's no relationship there. Isn't that what we'd be saying about the gospel? If it was just the, you are justified part of it? Where's the relationship? We're betrothed to a man. We were born dead. Away, completely separate from the God of the universe who is unity. And he gave us an invitation called the gospel through his son. How could we possibly whittle that down to forensics? Stated a little differently, justification is not the close of salvation. It is how God can righteously adopt his children into his holy family. 
the penalty is no longer an issue for a saved person. Eternal life is much more than simply being justified. It is a gift in of itself. It's wonderful that we're justified. It's necessary. But what about all the other things? What about all the other good news? What does John 3.16 say? God so loved the world that, begin, that He gave His only begotten Son, those who believe shall not perish, but what? Have eternal life. Up here on the board. A sentence may remove the penalty, but freedom must be experienced as a change of personal circumstances for it to be real. The blog will explain more on that. But a sentence may remove the penalty, but freedom must be experienced as a change of personal circumstances for it to be real. And salvation is real. That's the whole point. For so many people that have believed a lie about the gospel, it's not real to them. It's actually not real. They'd sit there and wonder, I guess I'm saved. I mean, I did this thing. I don't know if I'm saved or not. Well, let me tell you something, and this is what the Bible tells us, especially about the Spirit, our Helper, who will convict us of such such things. If you're saved, you'll know it. How about that? If you're saved, you will know it. And I don't mean to pull out a piece of paper. Oh, see, it says right here, I'm married. Yeah, but you don't love your spouse. Where's the love? Isn't that what a lot of people say? Just get the piece of paper. Because if you have the piece of paper, you get into heaven. That's what a false gospel does. Just get the piece of paper. You are justified. Believe these facts. But you don't love Jesus Christ, so how could you possibly be saved? Because I'm going to give you my love. When I save you, I'm going to make you new. And all you're going to want to do, that new creature, is love me. So if you don't have any of that love, what did 1 John say? You don't have Him. That's a real difference, isn't it? That's a, a real change. You are changed if you are saved. And if you are changed, okay, you ready for this one? You're going to know it. If you're changed, you will know it. I didn't say that. Go to John. Read 1 John when you go home. You know, before the pats come on. A very telling passage is one that we visited briefly on Thursday. Go to Titus 3.5. Excuse me while I dab myself. <laughs> I don't want to blow my nose because the mic is like right here. It's going to sound like a trumpet. Titus 3.5. He saved us. Titus 3.5. Right after Timothy. Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Well, that sounds like quite an extra little caveat beyond justification, doesn't it? Sounds like some amazing thing go on at salvation. Far beyond a gavel coming down, doesn't it? Yeah. By the washing of regeneration 
and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let me give you this after that lovely passage up here on the board. On justification and salvation, remember it this way, because I don't want you to get all crazy and logical and um, bound up in supernatural things. I really don't. And I'm speaking from a guy who um, was very well versed in uh, those things. And uh, I'm just telling you from personal experience, it's folly. It's folly. There's just some things, I, you know, supernatural things that happen at salvation. We just by faith have to say that's what happens. And we have to be comfortable with it. Even though we can't logically put it in some order. You know, this thing came before that thing or that thing came before this one. And, you know, all this logical thing. A person is never justified if they're not saved. Period. A person is never saved that is not justified. Period. This does not make, though, justification and salvation the same thing. Only simultaneous grace. Some make the mistake of placing an equal sign, you know, like in math, between the two concepts. That's a massive mistake. They do occur simultaneously, and there is some logic you want to call it that, some interdependency, some codependency between different doctrines, different parts of salvation? Of course there is. But justification and salvation are not equal. Just because things happen at the same time, they're not the same thing. If they were, the Bible would just call them the same thing, right? If you simply read as one of a vast multitude of examples in the Bible, Titus 3, 5-7, like we just did, you'll see a multitude of distinctions being made, not the least of which is being, or that being, made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, being a function of being justified, you know, quote-unquote, in the first place. In other words... He can't make you an heir. He can't adopt you unless you're justified. But he's never going to justify you unless you're adoptable. Does that make sense? They're not the same thing, in other words. He does a bunch of stuff when he saves you. That's the point. And there's a whole lot of good news. The gospel. And it's not just being justified. That's what the Spirit's been trying to teach us all up here on the board. Salvation is a miracle. And that's how you should look at it. You were born dead, and now you're made alive. Anybody able to spiritually resurrect themselves or regenerate themselves? Anybody able? Anybody have that power here? No, we just read that the Holy Spirit regenerates us and washes us, baptizes us. That's from other scripture, you see? That's why we've got to read the whole Bible. It just keeps amplifying the beauty of the gospel. But salvation is a miracle, and you should look at it that way. While the Bible reveals that many things occur at salvation simultaneously, we accept this by faith, of course, there are codependencies, and I am very shy to write that. 
only because I don't want to muck it up like I've done in the past, frankly. There are, all right, there are codependencies. Oh, this is interesting. Anybody? Hold on. Okay. I don't think. Ooh, you dog. It's not me. Although it's, the, I think it might be the wire, maybe. Wow. Check, check, check. You hear that? Okay, hold on. We're gonna try a different medium. I'm getting so fired up, there's like static electricity just coming off of me. <laughs> just screwing up my mic. That's true, you know. One of the X-Men. Sal oh, come on now. Oh, is it down here? All right, let's keep going. Salvation, can you hear me? Is that coming through the mic? Salvation is a miracle. While the Bible reveals that many things occur at salvation simultaneously, we accept this by faith. There are co-dependencies on certain concepts like justification and adoption. He's not going to adopt you unless you're justified, etc., etc. Or adoption and blessings. There's certain blessings you get as an adopted child, so says Scripture. Or baptism and indwelling. He's not going to dwell you unless he baptizes into unity with himself. You follow, et cetera, et cetera. Great. That's part of the miracle. Don't ask me to put on a timeline. Don't ask me to create some logical sketch of it. Just accept it by faith. That salvation is a stupendous, incredible miracle. And far be it from man to whittle it down into one piece of it. So to net all of this out, all the Spirit is saying is something very simple, that we shouldn't ever minimize the grace of God at salvation. So concentrate. Now, as believers, we might say, of course not. Why would we want to minimize the grace of God? Learning all of these things is so edifying. And most of you would agree. This morning's message even, you might be like, what a wonderful reminder of the grace of God. But you see, we aren't commanded to take the gospel out to the saved, strictly speaking, are we? No. The Great Commission is towards unbelievers, right? The Great Commission is towards unbelievers. So the danger in getting the gospel wrong or somehow minimizing it to make it easy or to accommodate man. Well, frankly, in those cases, we are not doing our God-given job. We're not. We don't have the right to hack up the gospel, to make it, quote-unquote, easy, to make it accommodating. I hope you know what I mean by easy. Easy and from a fleshly perspective, that a person would never have to look at themselves and realize that they're sinners and develop a sense of desire for a Savior. That would require work. 
then we're not doing our job if that's our gospel. The worst thing we can do is misinterpret the gospel or misrepresent it to an unbeliever. Just think about that. Concentrate some more. Some, I mean, think about it. Some might shy away from confrontation and or contention from loved ones regarding the gospel. Expect it. Expect that you will. I do. I mean, I'm, I'm so weak sometimes, it's pathetic. And I'm a pastor. It's pathetic. It's incredibly pathetic. I'll see someone, I'm like, man, I need to give them the gospel. Oh, oh, oh. but what will they, you know, now it's going to be like a problem. What will they think of me? Seriously, dude? What a wimp. That's me. That's how I think about myself many times. Like, what the heck's wrong with me? Why am I not like, you know, running down the street with a trumpet? I don't know. Why am I not giving the gospel to every single person that I meet, every new person that I meet? Why am I not saying, hey, do you believe in Jesus Christ? What do you think? We want to have a little discussion why am I not doing this thing? I'm weak. And don't get me wrong. Don't go out there and all of a sudden, oh, God, I guess we've got to go like, you know, evangelize the waitresses and the waiters and my barber and my, my uh, manicurist and my pedicurist and my hairstylist and my whatever it is you people do. Right? I mean, we, you know, that's not what the... You're going to receive... Uh, rejection. Especially, now here's the key, especially, you ready? With the gospel you've been given over the last year. Especially with the true gospel. Why? Because the gospel, the true one, is offensive. Truth be told. It's offensive. And most people don't want to be offensive. Most people just sort of want to skate by. Just slip under the covers. Just let me go on my way. But it's offensive. The true gospel will make an arrogant person stumble because it is offensive to them. However, a humble person will accept the same gospel as truth and be saved. So, I mean, that's great, but what if a person doesn't want to offend someone? Like, what if that's your thing? You say, oh, gosh, the gospel's offensive, and I don't want to offend my friend or my loved one or my coworker. What if that's you? I know that's me from time to time. I just shared that with you. You all laughed at me. <laughs> the tendency of man, so I don't want to be confrontational. I don't want to offend anyone, but yet the gospel in of its very self is horrifically offensive to the flesh. And someone living in the flesh, an arrogant person. What's our tendency to do? Our tendency is to water it down. To try to shoehorn unbelievers into the narrow gate. We don't have that right. That's all he's been saying. We don't have that right. We don't have the right to suppose that the God of universe, the God of unity, who gave us this incredible invitation through His Son, the greatest invitation of all time, we don't have the right to invite the flesh into that fold. 
Do you understand what I just said? We don't have the right to suppose or propose that we can invite ungodliness into that unity. Because first of all, it's a lie, and it won't happen. But do you see the theology around it? To try to shoehorn people in. Because we, as evangelizers, don't want to be offensive. So we sort of try to shoehorn them in there, right? We give them a watered-down gospel. We tell them, it's okay, you've got a sheet of paper. I know, you don't really love Jesus. There's nothing about your life that has any evidence or proof whatsoever, even though the Bible says you know. You know. But you have this piece of paper, so you're in. What did you just do to that poor person? You lied to their face. You lied to Jesus. You have no integrity. What are we saying then? What's the message we're sending? That God doesn't really want relationships with His creatures? That the gospel has nothing to do with a real relationship? That it's just a sheet of paper? Is this what we're trying to tell the world? And then what's the message we're sending them when we do that? We don't have a loving God, do we? Nope. We don't have a loving God at all. Because all he cares about is a piece of paper, I guess. You see what we just did to the gospel? You see what happens when you muck with the gospel? You take the love right out of it. What did we start with this morning? The immutable God says, love me. Obey me. Stick by me. That's very intimate. But we're going out there with a, if we go out there with a false gospel, we're going to tell the world we don't have a loving God. That, law, that God doesn't exist. He just wants you to believe these facts right here, sign below, you're good to go. Here's your ticket to heaven, don't lose it. Who did we just represent? That's not a loving God at all. That's not a God who wants a relationship. We talk about relationship, we use it as a punchline. Up here on the board, I, I, I'm just going to end here, I guess. You know what that means, part 30. <laughs> Scott, Scott's like, man, I thought I was done. That's what Scott likes to do. He's like, oh, man, when I teach these extra things, I get to go run off and teach other lessons. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Everybody's like, oh, this is so great, Scott. So awesome. <laughs> so, part 30. I'll give you this and then close. This is what the Spirit's been teaching us on the gospel. It's much better to make a person stumble over the true gospel than to skate over a false one. Signed, the sovereign God of the universe. He says, that's right. I am sovereign. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to accommodate you and your ridiculousness. I don't want you... Believers peddling a gospel that doesn't present me this way as the sovereign of the universe with every right whatsoever to demand perfect righteousness to become a part of the unity that is me. I'm not going to apologize and I don't want you to apologize. The gospel is offensive to the flesh. The flesh hates Jesus, hates the sovereignty of God. Do you understand these things? Hates them. What are we doing? We're going to present a weak, pathetic God that doesn't have any love whatsoever. Just whoosh, sign right here. Do you believe these line items right here? Good for you. Sign right here. You're good. There's your ticket. Go. 
That's not offensive at all, is it? You know why? Because it's a lie. <laughs> because it's a lie. This is one of the ways, and I'll leave you with this, I think, um, that you'll know that you're truly evangelizing. You, you're going to see people are going to be offended. If you never come across a person, you have your gospel, and you present it to people, and no one's ever offended by it. Chances are, it's not the true gospel. It's not. You've been lying, you've been lying through your teeth for years. Many of you have been. So was I. No wonder why. But if you give the gospel the way Jesus, you know, the author and perfecter of our faith, you know the one the gospel's about, if you give the gospel the way Jesus did, thank God you're probably not going to get hung up on a cross. But what did he say about the people that were even closest to him? The prophet's not without honor except where? In his own hometown. In his own household even. You're going to be offensive to people. You. That's right. You. Because you're supposed to stand for something, right? You're an ambassador. Do you know what it means to be an ambassador? To represent your home. Your home's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 or 120, one of the two. Our citizenship's in heaven. So you are, you become offensive. And some of you are like, nope, that's it. I can deal with it, I can do this, I can do that, but I have way too much standing in this world to let myself become offensive. I take showers, I make my hair up, I walk the walk, I look just like the rest of the people, I go to work, I don't ruffle anybody's feathers, I go down the street, I don't ruffle anyone's feathers, I look just like the world. What does the Bible say about that? A friend of the world is what? An enemy of God. Oh, man. Yeah, that's right. The gospel, the true gospel, if you're carrying it, will make you offensive. Get used to it. And if you're not up for the task, then that's something you need to pray about. That's something you need to talk to God about. But I'll end here. The gospel is offensive. It's much better to make a person stumble over the true gospel than to skate and I'm talking about them skating over a false one. Amen? All right, Monica, what do we have for a song? Do you remember? Is it appropriate? Yeah, let's play it. All right, let's play the video.
Let's just close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this magnificent opportunity to gather together in the unity that is yours, yours to give to your children, to enjoy freely as members of the same family. Thank you for letting us run around and frolic in your grace, your mercy, and your love. This is all part of this unity, Father. Thank you for ordaining it from eternity past that we might enjoy this thing even in time, in the imperfect conditions that we live in now. So much hope tied up 
so much reality to eternal life, so much to look forward to, Father. Thank you for these glimpses, these reflections of you, of your essence and time. Thank you most of all for the one whom you became yourself. Jesus Christ, God became man. Thank you for this indescribable gift, Father. For without him, we'd never make it to you. May we learn the true gospel, the one that transcends human history even, the one that speaks to your will, to your power, to your grace. May we understand it, embrace it, and fulfill the great commission upon our lives with it. And be it offensive to some or not, we pray for the strength and tenacity and perseverance that only you can give. Thank you for your spirit that affords us this power in time. Thank you for bringing it all together, even though our finite minds cannot fully fathom it, Father. For who can? We ask for traveling mercies as each of us go on our ways towards that commission this afternoon. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.